acknowledge the traditional custodians of the ground we stand on and thank them for allowing Papa to tell stories on these glorious lands we share. Hello and welcome to Plated Three Food Memories. I'm your host, Savas Savas. For a quarter of a century, my catering company, Plated, has contributed food experiences for some of Australia's most extravagant and intimate soirees. Food connects us. It connects us to people, to places and to moments in time. These memories shape who we are and what we value. So come and break bread with my guests and I as they share their food memories, revealing far more about themselves than what they've tasted. This year, Vivid Sydney invited me to host a live audience recording of Plated Three Food Memories at the Powerhouse with writer-slash-raconteur Benjamin Law. To paraphrase the Scottish poet Robert Burns, the best-laid plans of mice and men often go awry. And sadly, Ben had to pull out of the evening because of a family emergency. Thankfully, Benjamin's family emergency is back to good, and what you're about to hear is a rescheduled studio recording. To give you a taste of what you're in for, here's the message Ben sent me when he found my invite emails in his junk folder. They did go to my spam saver after all. So sorry, my inbox thought you were a porn bot. I mean, look, it's a half-truth when it comes to you, Sava. I mean, I'm not going to throw you onto the bus, but if <laughs> God, I, was, I put you through a lot. My... <laughs> if I was trying to sell you Viagra, I wouldn't be doing my job properly. Yeah. Ben... That would be a very interesting episode of Plated. <laughs> ben, a big juicy welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for making the time, Sava. Um, yeah, juicy, umami, crunchy, it's going to be all of those things. Before we do get into that, congratulations on the success of Wellmania. Tell us what it was like working with Celeste Barber. Oh, Celeste Barber, my ride or die. She's an absolute dream. So obviously I was a fan of Celeste before I was a colleague and a friend. And I think what Celeste does so well is she engenders this sense of intimacy and belonging like I think people feel Celeste is so approachable because it feels like they know her you know everyone wants to be her best friend and that vibe that she emits from her social media when she's you know happily taking the piss out of things and when she's you know just having fun with her body that is her you know she is like that also in the work environment she's an absolute joy to work with and she is one an incredible actor which I really, really was happy about Wellmania showcasing because before she was this Instagram star and clown, she was also a trained actor and I'm so glad that the world gets to see that now. And I think the other thing is she's an incredibly smart and sharp, intuitively intelligent person when it comes to story and character and what good storytelling looks like on TV. Yeah, she is the best of who we are as Australians, isn't she? She represents our core. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it, Sava, because there is something about Celeste that I think is specifically Australian as well, you know. Um, 
Americans, uh, for instance, are, are kind of less inclined to take the piss out of themselves. Uh, if you start being self-deprecating, which is a very Australian trait in America, they're like, honey, do not say that about yourself. You know, whereas <laughs> just like, I think Celeste has shown very physically what fun can be had to be um, taking the mickey out of ourselves, but also taking the seriousness out of our bodies as well. We take our bodies so seriously and that can be really heavy. And I think the other thing that she does so well is mobilize community. You know, when she was raising money uh, during the bushfires uh, for fire services across Australia, I think that's a very Australian instinct as well, which is like, we're in a catastrophe. What can we do to, to band together? Not so much what can we do to shut other people out, but who's around us and who can help? And she's very good at that. You're in a very privileged position yourself where you have the ears of many I personally see you as the voice of now a master of communication, you know, TV, radio, podcast, fashion walking. I mean, (laughs) you're slaying every platform just like Buffy. Thinking about the theme of Vivid this year, which is naturally, and Gil Menovini's, uh, uh, the festival director's desire to create a festival where no one is left behind... Is there a way to communicate with people wherever their belief system is, wherever their politics are, so that no one is left behind? How Hmm. do we talk to people? You know, I think of when you say Gil and her role at Vivid spearheading this, you know, her background's actually from Mardi Gras. And when you think about the kind of community spirit that you want to engender for Mardi Gras, it's about not just putting one marginalized community up there to be celebrated it's about putting so many of us you know that's why we're lgbtiqa plus you know it's a whole coalition of people together and you have to be mindful of making sure that everyone's included and for something like vivid which is a sydney event you know that's really about making sure that there's something there for everyone you know the families who come out and see the lights the people who want their brains stimulated by the culture conversations and now they're branching it out to food and, and when you talk about naturally being the theme of, of Vivid as well, I think that's about engaging in the natural landscape and not forgetting to include um, that mindfulness that we are in this beautiful but also quite fragile um, landscape. And I think all of those things are, are in mind, you know, how to engender community, how to like use Sydney well, but also how to respect the natural landscape and respect each other. Um, how do you have those conversations? How do you do it? Well, Look, not to, um, you know, quote too many old dead white men, but I always, I always um, think of that Oscar Wilde quote, which is kind of an MO for me in terms of like how I do my stories, which is um, if you're going to tell people <laughs> the truth, make them laugh. Otherwise, they'll kill you. And I do think, like, especially if you're an outsider or if you're, if you're from a historically um, underrepresented group in any sort of way, uh, I think humor is really, really helpful, actually. I mean... A lot of us, you know, especially queer people, we've used humour as a mechanism growing up to to shield and protect ourselves. But that comes from a place of like, we want to disarm you and we want you to feel comfortable around us as well. So I think uh, serious conversations framed with good cheer can be really helpful. You know, uh, serious conversations framed seriously 
Ooh, that's a big ask for a lot of people. But, you know, humour is helpful. Do you think you could take workshops with, uh, say, political leaders and business leaders on teaching them how to de-seriousify? Oh, I don't know. Like, I, I, I think, like, politicians have a hard enough task without me interfering with, <laughs> with their expertise. I'm definitely not going to tell them how to do their job. It's difficult enough. But I, I do think there have been, especially in the last parliament, not, not the current one as much, but definitely the last parliament, it's like, man, some people, especially that, that former prime minister, really needed to lighten up about things that needed to be uh, lightened up about and also take things more seriously that did need to be taken seriously. So I think it's a balance. It's not so much laughing constantly or finding the humour in everything. It's about understanding when it's warranted and when it isn't. So I'm going to do something that I've never done in a podcast before is I'm going to prepare a dish as it were. Okay. So this dish I'm going to prepare represents your foundation years. That's the aim of my dish, right? Okay. So I'm taking a really searing hot wok in it. I'm going to throw three ingredients, gay, Asian and male. (laughs) And then I'm going to throw, (laughs) and then I'm going to throw in this really spicy ingredient called Brisbane in the nineties. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. How do these ingredients come together to form your own belief system? Oh, I love that recipe. It's one that's very personal to me, Saba. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We are products of so many things. And, you know, when people kind of think about me as all those things that you said, gay and Asian and blah and blah. You know, I think like we're we're also, we're, all of us are made up of those things like gender, geography, sexuality, um, you know, a time and a place, but not everyone is forced to think about it. But I think because I'm a, I'm a kind of an unusual exotic <laughs> proposition and dish, when you throw all of those things into the wok, I think I'm more mindful of it because of my difference and other people are mindful of it because of my difference as well. And um, I don't know, like if you take the example of like Queensland in the 90s, you know, just that element of the dish itself is interesting because that whole that whole saying with the personal is political and the political is personal, we are all products of like history and politics around us because the 1990s, um, especially the mid-90s, uh, for me in Queensland was about the rise of Pauline Hanson. And prior to that, you know, multiculturalism was actually quite celebrated. It was official government policy. Um, you know, World Expo 88 brought the world to our doorstep. You know, I was six years old during World Expo. And Together we'll show the world. Was... Together we'll show the world. Absolutely. Yeah. You remember yeah, the platypus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> <laughs> And even though I was like one of the very few non-white kids in my entire year level, there was like me and two other Asian kids in this sea of whiteness. We, we weren't really picked on for our race. In fact, we kind of had cred. Like, kids wanted to learn how to use chopsticks. Like, I didn't have that whole smelly lunchbox experience that a lot of migrant background kids do. I, I had some cachet in the schoolyard, and that's because of the political climate at the time, I think. And then when the political climate changes, then it's like, oh, I'm very aware of what I am. Oh, I, I knew I was Asian, but I didn't realise you all thought... It was a bad thing. Um, And, you know, similarly with being gay, being raised in the last mainland state to decriminalise homosexuality, like that's obviously going to affect how you see yourself and how other people see you as well. And so I think all of those things to me uh, are kind of like things I'm either neutral about or, or proud about even, but because they set me apart at such a young age, something I was really conscious about too. Do you think that formed the basis or the 
the foundation ingredients to the stuff that you're doing now? Um, I think so because, you know, it's a cliche to say I didn't see people like me on the page or the stage or the screen growing up, but it's true, you know. But did you think about it at the time or is it it retrospectively? Yeah, I don't think I connected the dots at the time. I think I was just like a massive attention seeker, like outside of those markers and conversations about identity. I think I was just like a massive attention seeker. But I think also you feel like you have something to say that you don't see other people saying or that hasn't been put on a platform as well. So there is, I think, maybe a bit more of a driving force to... I don't know, as I do work in the media, work in the arts, because you feel like there's urgency to the conversation, you know, that you feel like there's urgency in um, telling these stories that you wish you had growing up because you know what a difference it would have made if you'd seen those TV shows or heard those conversations on radio or read those stories in a book growing up. And I think that's something that I don't know, like if you're if you're a kid of a migrant background, like there's a lot of stuff. Look, we could have a whole other yeah. conversation about yeah. like not letting your parents down because they've worked so hard to raise <laughs> you. You know, like that's a whole other conversation that's that drives a lot of kids of migrants as well, right? Which is just like they've sacrificed so much, so I have to, I really have to put my whole pussy into it. Like there's that there's that conversation too. But that is also, I actually just came across this book recently called I think Four Thousand Weeks. Um, and it's really about a Christian, Jewish, a faith-based, it's kind of an an idea that idle time or doing nothing is a sin. You must huh. co- must be constantly working. And if you're not working, you're not achieving or you're not moving forward. So that's, if I think back of my own family, my own parents and where they come from, it was, we were, it was constant. Things were just yeah. constantly happening and to stop. Like there were no such thing as like going away on holidays. That was what, oh, literally a holiday was Expo 88. Yeah, completely. And and I don't think there's that kind of safety net when all of the rest of your family is so far away or that idea of inherited wealth or anything like that. There isn't that kind of like support network around you. Even if you want to babysit it, you know, your siblings probably are living overseas. So how are you going to take care of your Mm. kids? So every hour does count. And so every hour that my father and my mother invested into like restaurant work, you know, they, I don't remember either of my parents taking a sick day off ever. My dad worked seven days and nights a week at the restaurant. My mum worked seven days and nights a week raising five children full time and, and later on as a single parent as well. So it's like, they don't even need to tell you about hard work. They just demonstrate it and have set the model for what you need to do. But I don't know about you, Sava, but like as I get older now, I'm like, oh, the idea of every hour <laughs> needs, to be, needs to be squeezed out for work. I think that was all of my 20s and 30s. And I'm really trying to um, not do the opposite, but find that balance and also prioritize rest and leisure and spending time with my family as well. Like, I, I'm like, oh, maybe that's important too. Yeah, that's important, Ben. <laughs> what a breakthrough. You, you spoke about a restaurant. So did your f- family own a restaurant or they were? They did both. So when my, when my father and my mother, when they migrated from Hong Kong where they met to Australia, uh, they ended up 
on the Sunshine Coast Caloundra, <laughs> which is a really weird place for two like Asian migrants to end up. <laughs> and there was an opportunity there to work in a restaurant that was already there. And then when they were working in the restaurant, then the opportunity transformed into one where they could take over the restaurant. And so my parents worked downstairs and they lived upstairs in this unventilated greasy apartment and by the time I came into the scene they owned another restaurant um, they'd moved away from the original restaurant took on another restaurant and uh, then finally had a house that was separate to the restaurant so I, I feel like in the chronology of my five siblings I arrived at a sweet spot where I'm like oh yeah a house that isn't above a restaurant this is nice <laughs> so you grew up amongst the woks and the and the and the pans Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the garlic and the ginger and the cold rooms and the deliveries. And and looking back also at the stress and the incredibly thin margins that, that restaurants have, you know, I think people go out, whether you go out to a fine dining experience or you go out to your favorite Vietnamese corner shop or whatever, like either way, hospitality has incredibly thin margins. So you have to work so, so hard because again, talking about safety nets, hospitality is can be really, really stressful. Yeah, we, we definitely, as a family, kind of had highs and lows when it came to success and where where fortunes kind of like favoured us and when they didn't. So, yeah, we I, I was exposed to all of that stuff. Yeah, the hot walks and the oil. Okay, Ben, let's get, to, let's get this show on the road. I want to start with your first food memory, which is yeah. salted plums. Now, I've got a salted plum here. So I'm going to have one as you talk about them, and I'm going to respond. And is this your first experience? Are you a salted plum virgin? I was. I was before <laughs> the show. I took one. I was like, oh, they look really pretty. As we were packing them, I was like, no, I was going to try one. Oh, they're really sweet. So I had another one. But the next thing, I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to put it in two pieces in my mouth. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the next thing, I was like, <laughs> Your face had collapsed. My face had collapsed. I just, I've never. You turned into a pillar of salt. I, I, the citric acid in, I've never had such such a, 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 a water flow of citric acid in my mouth. It was just intense. And that's what's yeah. happening now. <laughs> you, you can't put them in your mouth in one hit either. What? Like you'll notice like a lot of White man East Asian people. <laughs> no, but it's like you'll notice a lot of East Asian people when they're having salted plums, they're nursing this thing that's only the size of a knuckle. Like it's so small, but they are like eating just the tiniest molecule of this Ugh. thing over like an hour, right? And they're having it with tea, but it's almost like, I don't know, like it's like this massive umami salty hit uh that is completely you know Sava, here's my here's my theory every culture has an objectively disgusting food that everyone in that culture loves but you cannot defend it to other cultures you grew up with it or you're absolutely disgusted by it australians vegemite japanese people not though you know like um pickled herring for the scandinavians my people it's salted plum so i'm Eating this in one hit, like I'm like pushing it down, and you're telling me your people (laughs) do it over an hour with liquid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we have a lot of tea. Just nibble a bit. You just put it down for a bit. Yeah, look, your kidneys are probably collapsing right now from what you've done, Sava. Probably should have warned you. Now you're having a medical event. (laughs) So this is so this is what do they do? Do they keep it in their back pocket? Like what is it something that's on a (laughs) is it in your handbag? Is it in with the cash that you take to the bank after you've done what how? 
So it's like after dinner or sometimes before a meal, perhaps, if you just want a kind of, I was about to say palate cleanser, but it does not cleanse the palate at all. It does the opposite. It salts your palate. Look, it's, um, it's a way, like a, like a pickle does, it prolongs food. So there's a way to make the plum last longer. But it is actually, when you say, do you put it in your pocket or whatever, from what I understand, some of the historical records show that this was like a really popular thing to have like on the gold fields, for instance, because, you know, it's just a little bit of a hit of energy, a little bit of salt, a little bit of sugar with your water. When you think about it, it's a portable electrolyte, you know, for when you're, for when you're working hard. Then you, swallow, then you swallow the water and you can keep going for a bit. There's just a bit of flavor yeah. and then you can keep going. So it is, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty intense. You've eaten like a concentrated um, energy ball. Energy <laughs> ball. So how are they, how are they made? God, I wish I knew. I just assume it's kind of like a dehydration process where they're smothered in salt and sugar. I can't believe they're necessarily the healthiest thing in the world. That's why you have it in small measured amounts. But to, there are different variations of these where some are actually still quite moist and they're actually quite mild. The ones that I like just feel like there's never going to be moisture again in your life. You know, they're just so dry. They're so salty. It's like, wow, that has just parched me immediately. And um, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, the whole Seinfeld thing, these pretzels are making me thirsty. It's just like, (laughs) well, you haven't tried a salted plum yet. And so where can we send, where, where would you buy, where can we send our listeners to go and buy one of these things? Look, basically every Asian grocery store will have salted plums. And hilariously, the other thing is, if you go to like Far North Queensland, if you go to Darwin especially, there are stores just dedicated to salted plums and the kind of like universe of products around them, like dried salted sweet ginger, for instance, is is another one of my family favorites. Dried salted mandarin peel is another thing. So just dry, look at your face. It's just like, (laughs) why are there so many variations? Please stop making these things. But um, when when Chinese people uh, came to Australia, they came through far north Queensland and they came through the Northern Territory. So you know, especially people from Top End, First Nations people like, you know, Larrakia people or people from um, the Top End, Yongnu people, I'll be like, hey, you do salted plums, right? And they're like, absolutely. It's like one thing that a lot of Aboriginal people and Chinese people have in common, this salty plum supremacy that we've got going on. Do you keep any of this pickled business in your cupboard, in your kitchen cupboards at home? Oh, I definitely always have a salty plum. Like there are some nights where I've had a big meal and the other thing that I that a lot of um, East Asian people use salty plums for is digestion. You know, you've had a heavy meal. There's something about a salty plum and a cup of green tea that just aids digestion. And I think it is kind of like maybe it is that electrolyte vibe. You know, like you've had a heavy night, you go in the hydrolyte. Yeah. I think it's that thing. And when I when you go to India as well, you know, like they have lime, salt, and sugar. With, with cold water, with soda water. And I'm like, that's their variation too. That salty sweetness. Remember when like everyone was went wild about salted caramel? Oh, and yeah. it's like, did you know like salt and sugar can coexist? And it's like, yeah, that's not news. <laughs> that's not news. Like that's that's always been a great, great combination. So um, yeah, digestive purposes. Where do you go in the head? Like it's just, obviously it's automatic, but do you go back to your childhood, do you go back to the family home, to family memories when you were eating these plums? Is it is it a place of comfort? Do you think? 
Yeah, I think we grew up a lot with these plums, always like in a glass jar. You know, these are things that can outlast a nuclear winter summer. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't, you know, like there's there's always going to be a supply. You probably bought them last year in bulk, but they're still there. And so, yeah, to punctuate a meal, to finish off the night, to kind of like, you know, for kids especially, kids love those extreme things to put in their mouths, like warheads, you yes, know, those yes, lollies yes. that are just basically pure citric acid. You don't have teeth afterwards. <laughs> They came in chili varieties and sour varieties. I think a salted plum is like that too. It's so salty. It's so kind of like sour sweet that it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. you're kind of daring each other with them. So yeah, when I have them now, it's a nostalgic thing, but it's also a present day thing. You know, I still have them with my family. There's always a jar of them in every single family member's house. It's a, it's a non-negotiable. <laughs> um, well, I would like to move on from that because I, that flavour, but I will get used to it. In fact, what I'm going to do is start doing what you suggested is actually have it with my with my green tea at night after yeah, a meal. Use your teeth as a microplane, just a little bit in your mouth and then and then some tea. So just a little bit off, put it to the side. Mm-hmm. Do you keep it like in a little pill capsule or something? or just, just like, You can. Yeah, right. I mean, this is the glory of them, right? You can kind of keep them anywhere. They will outlast Take them to you. the disco. Like, <laughs> That's pull right. Them out. All right. <laughs> I am now, I'm going, we're going to your second memory. Now, I'm sure absolutely everybody can connect with this, and I absolutely do. Your second memory is Chao Shu So, which is the pork pastry. Mm. Tell us about that. Oh, look, I could have picked so many variations of this. You know, the steamed pork bun. This is the kind of like the flaky, delicious pork pastry. I could have picked anything from the yum cha trolley. But basically, I wanted some sort of dim sum to represent my connection to to yum cha, basically. Because it's funny, you know, we grew up in a, a Chinese, specifically Cantonese household. The Cantonese was kind of like one of the first waves of Chinese migrants to come over here. That's why it's, I think... Uh, the third or fourth most spoken language after English in Australia. And when people are like, you know, what is the food? What is the soul food that kind of like connects you to your people? It's yumcha. And there's kind of a pride about that because, you know, you say yumcha and I think every Australian who's ever experienced is just like, oh my God, I'm losing my mind over that. It's very rare that I do encounter people who haven't, who haven't either one experienced it or two fallen in love with it and when i do when they when they say i haven't done yum cha before i'm like let me introduce you to the rest of your life because i grew up so i grew up on the sunshine coast as a kid right which so it was about an hour and a half drive to to brisbane the big smoke and every time we drove to brisbane it was like again a non-negotiable to go to yum cha to have this absolute treat as my dad was picking up supplies for his restaurant or whatever that you could only get in Brisbane. We'd go in and it felt like being transported, one, to another world, but to my world. You know, there was some sort of like, yeah, there was some sort of like spiritual connection there that I really loved. And here's a fun uh, Yamcha fact, Sava. Um, You know, like when you go to... um, Yum Cha's in Australia, at the end, they'll bring dessert. And one of the desserts you can order is like a mango pancake. It's filled with mango and cream. You can't get that anywhere else in the world. It is authentically Chinese-Australian. And I think Adam Liao has spoken about this. He said, like, his speculation is 
yum cha proprietors in Australia would have these surfeits of mango that would be grown in the north. And mangoes are delicious. Chinese people love mangoes. Who doesn't like mangoes unless you're allergic, right? And um, they wouldn't know what to do with the excess. So they just came up with these crepes, filled them with cream, and they just took off. You go to Singapore, they don't have them. You go to Hong Kong, they don't have them. You go to Southern China, yum chas, they don't have them. It is a specifically Chinese-Australian invention. So I love that even our yum chas on this continent have their own special flavour. So yum cha is just not about the food, is it? It's the experience that we're, we're talking about now. What is it you love so much about the experience? Um, it's It's a good thing that you've picked up on that, actually, because... One, it's fun, you know, the novelty, especially for people who haven't been to Yumcha. Like I love taking my white friends uh, to Yumcha growing up and in my university days because they're just so taken by this thing where trolleys come to you. Like there's very few comparable kind of like dining situations where a trolley of piping hot fresh food will come to you and you get to pick like a little buffet on wheels that comes yeah. to you and you get to say that one, that one, not that one, thank you. But also try things that are familiar, like dim sum, you know, most people have had dumplings, but things that are unfamiliar, like fung jiao, which it, it translates to phoenix claws, which actually are chicken feet. It's a much more palatable way of saying chicken's feet, right? <laughs> phoenix, phoenix claws, they're chicken feet. How do you pronounce that? Fung jiao. Fung so jiao. You get, yeah, my, my Cantonese is very fluent when I enter a yum cha restaurant. Do you fall into situ, don't you? You're like, boom. Yeah, well, yeah. I just know food. That's the most important thing. And then having a regular conversation in a taxi, I don't know how to navigate <laughs> navigate that at all. Food is really the universal language. It That's really right. is it all comes down to food, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the other thing about the experience is that it's a hard experience as well. So what I mean by that is every Chinese funeral I've been to has been followed by Yamcha. You know, the the funeral will be held kind of earlier in the day and then we will go to um, the yumcha place afterwards to have the wake and it's kind of nice because then no one's having to prepare the food for the wake you get to make a toast with your little with your little cup as well you can eat as little or as much as you want because in the throes of grief your appetite might be huge or it might be greatly reduced and yumcha gives you that option you can have really ostentatious decadent food to celebrate the person you're grieving or you can have really humble food because it's really hard to eat and you can have like a a congee for instance so yum cha gives you that huge kind of palette and spectrum of food because we all grieve in different ways and i think yum cha caters for all of the differences of grief what are some of your favorite dishes on the yum cha trolleys oh so you're always <laughs> For me and my family, you're always going to get fung jiao because uh, you just need chicken feet. You know, it's it's a funny thing, but we always order Explain it. Explain to us how you eat the, the fung jiao. There's very little meat. There is no meat on these things. It's basically gristle. The claws have usually been clipped off, so they, you're not eating like these chicken fingernails, which is pretty intense. But it's served with like black bean sauce. And when it's done well, it's really, really like melting your mouth flavor it's just flavor and texture country if it's done bad which i had once in adelaide i was just like okay this yum cha restaurant needs to be shut down and if you go to adelaide you'll know the restaurant i'm talking about because it has like 2.8 stars on google i'm like are you a restaurant or a drug front because obviously you're not doing your job well but um when it's it's either done really really well or it's done really bad there's no in between 
So that's a non-negotiable. Um, Hagar, which is prawn dumplings, which everyone can get behind. Um, cheng fun with ha. So cheng fun is like fat rice noodles, which are just mm, just so delicious and packed with prawns um, with a beautiful sweet soy sauce over it, like a light sweet soy sauce. And then another non-negotiable is something called ham so gok which are often in Australia simply called football dumplings <laughs> on the menu because they're, they're crescent-shaped. They're in the shape of like an AFL footy, footy ball. And it's kind of crispy, sweet and salty. Again, sweet, savoury, umami kind of situation with, with pork inside. Every time a friend is visiting from overseas or if they haven't been to Yum Cha before, I get um, ham sogok for them because they just bite into them. They have no point of reference for what these things are. And they're like... Oh my God, that is so delicious. What is that? What is that? And I teach them how to say it. So the next time they come to Yamcha, um, if the trolley hasn't come past, they can ask for harm. So you got. I'd like to move on to your third memory, which is Pavlova. Now, Australia, New Zealand, who owns it? We are about to enter a culture war between Aotearoa, New Zealand and Australia because similar to Crowded House and Russell Crowe. And Russell Crowe, exactly, yes. And Sam Neill, <laughs> there, there seems to be a warfare going on. And I think at the end of the day, whenever those things between New Zealand and Australia happen, you actually do the work and it probably comes from New Zealand, <laughs> right? But, 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 but either way, um, I, I wanted to include pavlova because, of course, it's not an Asian dessert, right? But I always make pavlova every Christmas now because it is a dessert that goes really well with Asian food and actually pleases Asian palates. Because the thing about Asian eaters is that dessert is usually too sweet. You know, like Western desserts, they're like, oh, I'm not sure if I want that, that's too heavy. Or if there's like a mud cake afterwards, they're just like, oh, it's too... In Cantonese, you'd call it lull, <laughs> which means heavy. It, it just sits at the bottom of, of your stomach like a brick. That's not what you want to finish off dessert with. You want something light and you want the highest compliment that an East Asian person could give a dessert, which is it's not too sweet. If, if an East Asian person says that in your household at the end of the night about your dessert, that is, you have done them well. Light and not too sweet, those are the best things. And pavlova, of course, the meringue is quite chewy, sticky and sweet. But with that fresh cream and with lots of fruit, you know, Asian people love fruit with dessert because, you know, often dessert is simply fresh fruit. So that's why you get oranges at the end of a Chinese meal. That's why you get, you know, a platter of fresh fruit at the end of the meal. That's dessert usually. But the combination of that with the cream and the meringue, they're like, ooh, that's, we accept that dessert. That's okay. And so what I do for, for Christmas now is I do a very, <laughs> I do a very Asian slash Queensland pavlova, which is you make the meringue as usual, but you lash in um, crystallized ginger which is a very Queensland thing. I was expecting Bund- you to say Bundy rum just for a second. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, <laughs> really? <laughs> you could probably, you could pro- probably caramelize the ginger in, in Bundy the Bundy rum. rum, actually, because Bundy, Bundy rum, the Bundaberg also makes the ginger beer, right? <laughs> so, um, no, just like uh, basically like great crystallized ginger, fold it into the base. Of the egg white. Then, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And it just comes out with this gooey, 
gingery hot mess. And what I love about Pavlova is like everyone's always impressed by it, whereas it's actually taken zero effort. It's like such an easy. Oh, thing I think to make. you are underestimating it. You must make a very, you must have a fantastic technique that works for you because you oh. must, you must be. If you're making it year after year, you've perfected it, and it's like second nature to you because it is. Pavlovas are the right temperature, the right. Of the, uh, not only of the oven, but the egg yolks when you whip them. So you, I think mm-hmm. you, I think you've slayed this one as well, Mister Law. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's muscle memory. Yeah. You know, get the room, st- get the eggs to room temperature. It's just like there's a meditation e- that goes into it. Yeah, and I think from memory, it's like each egg white is fifty grams of caster sugar. I rest my I'll case. I'll have to check that. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, so I know when it's going right. Yeah. I know when it's going wrong. But the key thing that I always do every year is, um, yes, Asians love this dessert. But thank God that Zymel has uh, <laughs> has released lactose-free whipping cream because a lot of my people are super lactose intolerant. And so we love pavlova, but if you use like real fresh cream that isn't lactose-free, uh, we might have issues after the final Christmas meal. So <laughs> I just want to get to something because my, my children are half Asian uh-huh. and they don't react well to cow's milk. Yes, um, so yes. what is it? Is that because there's not a lot of cow milk in Asian cookery? Is it something? When I think about it, is there is there any animal milk in Asian cookery? Well, I mean, South Asian cooking definitely because there are so many cows, you know, like in India, and there's lots of cheeses in South Asian cooking. But with East Asian cooking, cows aren't as common. You know, it's not really a right. thing that you have in the pastures. It's more a thing that you're fattening up a pig in the back. That's why pork is just in so much of our dishes. Very, very anti-kosher, very anti-halal cuisine that we've made. Um, so it's easier to fatten up a pig, but a cow seems to take, like, you need grass and all of those things that that cows need. So my mum, for instance, if we're talking about dairy, you know, when she moved to Australia, that was the first time she'd tasted cheese. And she was like, what is this horror in my mouth? Uh, you know, like, she, she loves cheese now, yeah. but she could, but still, it's still quite a foreign kind of exotic thing for her because there's no kind of equivalent to that you can might have made like you might have eaten stinky tofu growing up as a kid you know that really umami rich smelly fermented thing but fermented cow's milk like that that that's a strange thing so you know a lot of vietnamese refugees when they arrived in australia were served cheese they're like what what do you people eat like what is that Uh, a lot of chinese immigrants came what is cheese and so I think similarly, when it comes to like something that's super lactose rich, like cream, they're like, wow, this is kind of delicious, but also my guts are doing a number on me. <laughs> we weren't, we, I, I think um, people have figured out like we haven't developed the enzyme that a lot of Anglo and European people have who've had a lot of cow's milk in their diet. And so similarly, when I talked about the uh, similarities between a- Aboriginal and Chinese people being salty plums, Aboriginal and Chinese people were also very lactose intolerant. (laughs) So that's, yeah, that's another kind of like unifying thing that we joke about too. When you construct your pavlova, what do you put on it? Oh, okay. So I've got my base and I've like, you know, I love playing with the meringue. So you get all of the little chewy bits, you know, you're using a kind of like fork or a skewer to get those little bits out, make it a bit of a Alaska Bombay kind of Bombay Alaska situation. Um, but then on top, you know, it's uh, fresh lactose free cream <laughs> whipped to perfection. 
And then when you think about all the fruit that comes out in an Australian summer, especially in Queensland, you know, I'll get the mango cheeks, I'll slice them and I'll combine them with passion fruit so it becomes a kind of jammy deliciousness. That goes on first. Then goes kiwi, sliced kiwi. You need all the colour, right? right? Then you might have blueberries or strawberries or both because now you've got yellow, green, purple and and um, and and red. You'll remember in the base is ginger. But then on top, just to garnish it, just a little bit more green, fresh mint goes really, really well on pavlova. Do you know how pleased I am you didn't say banana? Like banana on pavlova is like pineapple no. on pizza for me. Yeah, but having I don't, said that, I'd still eat it. <laughs> yeah, having said that, I'd still eat pineapple on pizza. Um, and banana, you know, like for me, I love banana on its own, but it's, you know, banana in desserts is not the thing I usually reach for. Like, shout out to all the banana split and deep fried banana fans, but yeah, it's not my vibe. And who sits around your Christmas table? Who are you preparing for? Oh, that's a lovely question. So it's my immediate family. I'm still lucky to have both of my parents in my life. Then it's me and my four siblings. Uh, I've got a got a few nephews nowadays, so my step nephews technically, but my two two nephews and my biological nephew, I guess, who's like the youngest one around the table. We've also got extended family members, so in laws come and in laws parents come as well. I think we used to as a as a family, as a law family, it used to be quite <laughs> possessive over like, no, it's just our family. We don't want. But as you get older, of course, families expand and change and we just include everyone and we find that makes for a much more beautiful, rich Christmas where there are far fewer fights and threats to call the police. <laughs> and um, that's, a, that's a really joyous thing. And, you know, my boyfriend is there, his mother is there, and I just look around the table and I think, wow, how far we've come, you know. Does he prepare anything for the Christmas lunch? Presuming it's a lunch. Yeah, jokes, yeah. stories, <laughs> anecdotes. <laughs> okay, there's a lot in there's subtext in no, there. No, <laughs> no, there's there's more like there's more a system where it's like implied who's doing the cooking and who's gonna be doing the cleaning right. later. Let's just right, put it that okay, way. Okay, okay. <laughs> Family law, clearly. Um, I I've had so much fun with that one. Thank you for the stories around the Pavlova. Now let's dip into your social cause. You've chosen a social cause that's intrinsic to your fibre, to the stuff that you believe in. You've chosen Environmental Defender's Office. Hmm. Why? When you asked me like what my cause was, I could have picked so many so many places that I believe in. I also think as we're recording this server, it's like coming up to end of financial year. Yeah. So you're thinking about like all the places you want to donate money to. And for the last few years, one of them has been the Environmental Defender's Office because I think as we're speaking now, you know, bushfires, catastrophic bushfires in Canada that are completely like smoking up New York. It's reminding us of the catastrophic bushfires we had several years ago and might have this summer when it comes to an El Nino event, you know, all of these things amplifying disaster because of catastrophic climate change. And I think like this year we're having this conversation because of Vivid. The theme is naturally, we won't get to celebrate anything. We won't get to celebrate nature and nature will be lost and we will be lost unless we protect our environment. Now, there are so many ways to protect our environment and sometimes the myriad of options um, can become overwhelming. But what I like about Environmental Defender's Office is they take the big guns to court and they'll say, hey, you big fossil fuel polluter, 
you are intruding on First Nations land in a way that violates law and you won't be able to start this coal mine and we're going to prove it in court. So these are people representing the little guy, taking the big guys to court and actually stopping them in their tracks successfully over and over again. So I believe that the climate conversation is essentially a conversation about justice and this is justice, I think, in its purest form, using law to protect the environment. Yeah, they are, they are using law and their legal resources to empower a community and to support against unethical illegal practices. I mean, that, that whole stuff of greenwashing, you just have to scratch the surface. And they do a great job. They don't just scratch the surface. They take a shovel to it and then they take a backhoe. Yeah. And then what they find is extraordinary. I've, I've, done, I've, had some, I've done some amazing research on them. Um, the most Clearly the most obvious way is to chuck buckets of cash at, at this organisation. But they have um, a very dynamic volunteer program that supports a vision where communities and nature thrive. So I'll put those details in the show notes so anyone can get on board. But any cash, any time um, can go straight into this organisation. And check out David Morris, the CEO. He's a bit of a dish. I did spend some time. <laughs> I did spend some time staring at his face and thinking, I could scrum with him. He's a, when you said you were doing research, we know what you were well, looking you at. Know, <laughs> when you're sitting there and you've read, it's going to have a little bit of fun. <laughs> I love that, Summer. Listen, before we go, and I have had fun and the time has just run away from me, I do want to go back to that dish I prepared earlier. I've kept it in the Bay Marie, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's there. And I'm putting it on my menu. It's Brisbane Ben in the 90s. Ben, what from this dish... What do you want to take to the world and the future success of it? Oh, wow. What a big question. Um, I, I look back at, you know, Ben in the 90s in Queensland, a little closeted Asian geek. And, um, and I think, like, what he doesn't yet understand is, like, how big the world is and how much access you can get to it. If, if you're lucky enough, you know, I think it's hard work, but I think it's also luck as well. I think there's going to be something about, ah, oh, you know, your capacity to tell stories and share stories that he's going to be really delighted by. But I also think, you know, it's not just my story. I think it's a story of a country of how far we've come. You know, if we're talking about food, look at how far the national palates come. And I think like, that's the story of Australia as well. I think like, you know, I don't think I've eaten so much Sri Lankan food in my life this year, and I don't think I'd had I'd eaten Sri Lankan food last year, for instance. You know what I mean? I think, like, our national story grows and evolves. I think that's represented in our food, that's represented in our people, and I think it's represented in the stories you showcase in the podcast. So I think there's just a, a taste of gratitude in my mouth. That sounds weird. That sounds slightly porny too, but you know what <laughs> I, I mean. I do. I just have everybody else does. <laughs> <laughs> the flavour is umami, people. <laughs> ben, you've been the sound of grace. Thank you so much. You're a paragon of loveliness. Thank you, Sava. Thank you to the New South Wales Government, Destination New South Wales and Visit New South Wales who give us a stronger Vivid Sydney Festival each year. To the powerhouse in Sydney, Mrs and George, about something... Cappy, Mama Cussa and Armadillo for making the live experience happen with us. To my plated people for literally everything in the lead up to the evening. 
My heartfelt thanks to Alice Sadzlavsky for stepping up and on stage with me on the evening. Head back to the podcast to hear Alice's very own food memories we recorded late last year. Plated Three Food Memories is produced by Plated Productions, edited by Lauren McWhirter, with original score by Russell Torrance. To look out for the next round of Plated Three Food Memories, be sure to follow Plated by Sava and flick your notification beam to the on position for all things Plated, including future live events. In the meantime, I invite you to go back and listen to some of your favourite Three Food Memories and DM me. I'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. Por acá,